So how much free time do you then have to do and pursue some of the things you're really passionate about in life? All of a sudden you're like, huh, there are actually not that many vacations and trips that I can take or achievements I can do in my lifetime. So I got to focus and I got to do the things that I want to do and maybe do them really well. Because what I don't want to do one day, and this is maybe like the fear that's driving sometimes, is like live a life in regrets. So I try to do the things that I have identified that makes me really happy, makes me feel fulfilled. And I try to do as much of them as I can. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Heidi, welcome to the show. Thank you. I get these things started the same way. I will read your background back to you. I'm already somewhat intimidated by the very beginning of your background, given the pronunciations from Denmark and Europe. So anyway, I'll get these things going. I will screw up. You tell me when I do, we'll go from there. Actually, can you start? What's the name of the university you went to? I can't do I can't say this. Sudansk? How do you say it? Sudansk. Wow. Okay. And it's the University of Southern Denmark. Yes, you can just call University of Southern Denmark. I wanted to say it. Okay, and then uh, so you did your BA and your master's there, mm. right? BA in marketing, master's in business. Then you went to the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs as an investment manager. Then you went to Google, quite the transition. You spent six-ish years as one of the founding members of the display and ads team. Then you went to LinkedIn, 2011? Yeah. All right. So 2011, Senior Director of North America Sales. I started as Director and then Senior Director. Got it. And then you went to the Senior Director of Global Sales for Marketing Solutions. You did three years of that. And then you were the VP of Global Sales for two to three years. And now you are the CRO of Nextdoor. You started July 2020. It's been a year and a half. Mm-hmm. How did I do? Passable? Yeah. I guess C minus. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. What was your first ever job? I picked strawberries when I was 10 years old. I heard that. Where'd you do that? In Denmark, in the fields. Why'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> this was one of the greatest gifts my parents have ever given me, actually. I was obsessed with horses at the time. And Some of my friends had horses in their farms and I grew up in the countryside, like way out in the countryside in Denmark. And I wanted one too. And my parents said, we're not going to pay for one. If you want a horse, you're going to have to earn your own way and you're going to have to pay for half of it. And I was 10. I was like, how am I going to do that? And they go, well, turns out summer is coming up. Like you can go and pick strawberries down in the field and you can do that every morning. And I'm sure you can make enough money to eventually get a horse. And so I was like, I want to do that. And so I, the entire summer, myself and a girlfriend of mine, got up at 5, 5.30 in the morning 
went down to pick strawberries for three to four hours every single morning. And at the end of the summer, I had saved up money. And I said to my parents, I've saved up money. Is this enough? And they go, well, we don't know. And it was probably not really all that much money, but I had saved up money. And so we started looking around for horses to understand the prices. And they said, well, if you give us the money that you made, plus the money that you have in your savings, more my birthdays, we can buy this pony and that'll be a horse, the horse that you can keep. And I was so excited because when you are 10, you think at first you say to yourself, the whole summer, that's like the end of the world. Like this feels like a lifetime, right? Do I really have to wait that long? I have to wake up in the morning, yeah. every single morning. And it sucked on some mornings, right? This is early to you're get ten, up. You're 10 years old. I'm 10 years old. Yeah. And there were so many other things I wanted to do, but I stuck with it because the idea of getting that horse was just so, I was so invested in wanting to get it. That I was willing to put in the work every single morning and do it, even when the struggle became real. And that is something that really has been sitting with me ever since and has shaped so much of my life. So I can't thank my parents enough for doing it because they showed me that if you put in the work and you stick with it, even when the struggle gets really tough, the outcome you get is that reward over time. Did you get the horse? Did you end up getting a horse? I got the pony. It was a, an old pony because that was all we could afford. Right. But she was great. I and, got the horse. And were you picking, I don't know why I'm asking these questions, but were you picking strawberries out of your own field or somebody else's field? Oh, somebody else's field. Somebody else's yeah, field. Yeah, I was a farmer who had strawberry fields. How did you get to the strawberry field? On my bike. You would bike to the strawberry Absolutely. field? Absolutely. <laughs> My parents were not going to drive me down there. I had no, to it's bike. 5 a.m. Who yeah. wants to wake up at 5 a.m.? No, my dad was always up at 5 a.m., but we were told to get on our bikes. What did Pops do it in Denmark? So my dad has a background in construction. Mm-hmm. He grew up on a farm, but chose the trade of, of construction and did that over time. What's Denmark like in the summer? It's nice and warm. It's got to be really nice, right? Yeah, it's super nice. Okay. Can you help me understand how an investment manager in the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs ends up at Google. Haha. Well, investment manager sounds super fancy. It was a great opportunity to be able to work for your country. And I had the opportunity, thankfully, to go to Silicon Valley, which was had multiple different options of where I could go. But I had just written this thesis around whether or not you could replicate the Silicon Valley in Denmark. And this was at a time where we had just gone through the bust, the great bust here in the area. And I was really keen to go over here and just understand better how does a region emerge out of a, a great bust and come back again. And this is in 2003 time frame, so a couple of years after. And it felt like a great opportunity to get really close to that environment and to understand it and to also understand what I'd written about, like some of the things I said, could I validate them? What is the lived life? Because there's academics and then there's reality. So I took the opportunity to come out here And being in the government world is, you know, there are so many things that are excellent about it and it's, you know, national feelings sort of really come to life, right? There are many good things, but it is also very slow and very bureaucratic, especially when you come to Silicon Valley and you see a very different pace of life. And so as I came out here and started to form friendships with with people who were in biotech, tech, and I worked with a lot of companies in those fields too, I was like, huh. There's a different way of doing work. And I saw young people doing big jobs very early on in their, it's called such so tenure, right? And getting those opportunities. And I was like, huh, this is what they mean by land of opportunity. This is really interesting. And so I had a friend at a time who was working at Google who said, why don't you come and look at Google? 
And I was like, well, number one company in the world at the time seems like a pretty good idea. But I was looking, you know, at a bunch of different opportunities and I got some really good advice from a person out here because I was thinking initially, you know, going into sales was not in my DNA, not necessarily what I saw myself doing. I'm half introvert, half extrovert, and it felt like a big step into something that seemed uncomfortable at the time. And so we had this conversation around like, how do you build a career in a country where you didn't grow up and you don't have the college network that most others have in the country? It's almost like a cold start, right? I had a few people I knew, but not very many. How do you really get started and get started in a way where you can have an exponential growth in your career rather than a step-by-step. And so the advice he gave me was the gift you can give yourself is to get as close to customers as possible. Because if you can get into a company that is on the forefront of how we both innovation and how you can scale something to get really big and the company has potential to get massive, you will get the network, you'll get skill sets, you'll get support to continue to develop as an individual. And getting close to the customer, you're going to sit in a crucial part of the company that is going to open up so many more doors for you for what you want to do later on, because you will have known how a company like Google, who is one of the the first to sort of really think through how you monetize through ads and how do you scale really rapidly. But then becoming part of that voice of the customer and seeing it with your own eyes will give you the power to very quickly go into different types of roles and follow other passions if you end up having other passions. So I ended up jumping into Google for some of those reasons. And so you came alone? You come to the States alone? Yeah, I came here originally on my own. Two suitcases in my hand, got a 65-year-old boss in my job in the foreign ministry. It was great because one of the appealing things working with him was he allowed me to do more than normally someone fresh out of college would be able to do. How old were you? When you moved uh, over to the States? What was I, 25? 25. 24, 25, yeah, something along those lines. Yeah. So after having been here for a few years, I ended up meeting what eventually became my husband. And he also was, of course, a great connector mm-hmm. to establishing relationships because he obviously had the college network. And then you start to meet people and, you know, I had to embrace the uncomfortable of going out a lot and meeting people in different places. What do you mean you're half introvert, half extrovert? Is that like your Myers-Briggs test? What does that mean? yeah. Being out in big crowds a lot, I can do it and I can pull it off and I can be on the stage and bring a lot of energy. I can, as you see in my resume, I can teach a spin classes and show up and get everybody excited. But then I need my own time. Mm. (laughs) I need the downtime. I need my runs in the mountains or my bike rides on my own or just my own space to just be with my own thoughts. And it does feel uncomfortable at first for me to be in big crowds amongst a lot of people. I can do it and I think I can do it well, but it is not where I get energy from. It is an energy drain for me. When you're with others, do you think you fill your cup when you're alone? Yes, I do. So you come to the States Mm -hmm. and one of the first things that you do along with beginning your career at Google is choosing to become an Equinox instructor, which you just referenced. Is that right? I was instructing in a bunch of different places. You were teaching spin classes. I was, I was teaching spinning classes. You're teaching all sorts of classes. Abs, arms, core. Okay, so, oh man. So I'd go to like a Barry's class twice a week and I, I try and do yoga classes every few days. And I always think it must be so hard to be an instructor of this class. How hard is it? I guess the hard part must be like doing it, just starting. I would be so nervous in front of a class like that. It doesn't bother you. 
So in the beginning, yes, you get nervous when you do it, but it's incredibly rewarding. So I'll start by saying like one, it is, depending on who you are as an instructor, I don't personally, my DNA, I don't do anything halfway. So I spend a lot of time preparing for all the classes that I did when I was teaching spinning. How do you prepare? Well, you teach spinning, you do your playlists, right? Like I would spend, And you sit alone, you do the class. I would spend hours like figuring out the music composition, how do I match music cadence with the cadence of how fast you're spinning the wheels, like right. RPMs, right? Yeah. And matching it all together so it makes sense. So I can paint a picture, like a mental picture to people, whether we're climbing a mountain or going downhill. I put a lot of work into all of that. But what continued to really excite me about that kind of job was seeing people getting better, doing better, getting more comfortable with themselves, gaining confidence, getting stronger, achieving their goals. It's all about unlocking potential, which is the same as you're building a business and running teams, mm -hmm. right? It's like finding that drive in people, finding what gets them going mm -hmm. and then motivate and inspire them to keep going even when they want to stop. Mm. You see like the common thread? Yeah. Like, it's like you see in their eyes that they're tired, they're done, they don't want to do it, or they had a hard day, or they didn't want to get up in the morning. Yeah. And then you find whatever sort of really gets them going, and you unlock that, and you see that transformation right in front of your eyes. It is incredibly rewarding. So do you put the entire workout together on your own? Let's assume it's like an abs class, or it's yeah. a full body workout class. Do you decide not only the music, but the composition and flow of the way the workout's going to go? Do you start from nothing and yeah, just build totally. it out? Yeah. That's insane. And then, and then <laughs> do you, okay. And then how do you do spin or abs and yell at everybody while you're doing it? How can you do the workout and then also coach other people to do the workout? How do you have the breath to do both of those things at the same time? How is that possible? You get in shape. <laughs> Shit, I'm not in shape. I'm just not in shape. You learn to control your breath. Like you use your diaphragm and then you learn to control your breath while you're moving. Why did you decide to teach it rather than just be a participant in the class? I did both. Again, the key driver was really to be able to help other people and seeing them have a positive experience. And of course, it was nice to have extra pocket money too. Yeah. I was not making that much money at the time, right? Yeah. So anything I made off of teaching was going to be my vacation money and and other things, right? So that obviously helped too. Yeah. But you know, teaching, you don't make a ton of money. So, But it was a nice little side income to have. I've been traveling for almost 18 months now, 20 months. Yeah. And I used to go to Equinox. That used to be my workout. I used to go for runs. And since I've been traveling, I got rid of, you know, obviously my gym membership, gyms haven't been open, but I've been going to classes. And the weird thing about classes and not to like foreshadow what I think we're going to talk a lot about later, but the sense of community that I actually got from workout classes made me feel really good when I'd walk into a new city because I'd go to New York or I'd go to Austin. And again, I really didn't know anybody. And a lot of the time I was traveling alone and going to a class every day and, or I wish it was every day, like a couple times a week and knowing the instructors knowing the people that were going to be in that class and then knowing that you're all kind of doing something together and it sucks and then you get through it. I don't know. There's something kind of comforting in that. It gave me a sense of belonging in a very, very random place in a kind of weird way. Does that make sense? I don't yeah, know. I mean, it's like you travel place and you find your tribe. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, those are my people. They're into the same thing I am. And you share this experience where you go through the grind and then at the end of it, you feel amazing because you got all the endorphins running through your bodies, right? It's an amazing experience. Okay, can I ask you, I'm gonna to continue to unpack this. So I used to have a Peloton 
And then I ruined the Peloton for myself because you strike me as competitive. I'm pretty competitive and I'm really competitive with myself. And the, the problem is on the Peloton, there's a leaderboard. And if there's a leaderboard, I have to be at the top of the leaderboard. It's just for me. Like I need to do that. And so eventually, if I wasn't in the top 1% of all classes in the Peloton, I'd be really upset. Like I didn't push myself hard enough. And then once I get to that, I'd kind of like raise the bar. And by the end of it, I would do a 30, 45 minute ride and I was miserable. I literally worked myself to be so miserable. Does that happen with you? No. 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 I mean, maybe to some extent. So one, I've actually never done Peloton. Okay. I know what it is. Never done it. That's surprising. But when I have traveled for work in the past, I've done the flywheel classes in New York. Whenever I go there and they have a leaderboard too. Yeah. And absolutely, I try to be one of the top ones. Like when yeah. I do see the leaderboard, <laughs> my competitive instinct <laughs> kicks in. But I don't get bummed if I don't end up the top. I'll be like, huh, could I have worked harder? Mm-hmm. No, I gave it my all. Well, somebody else is just more fit and better than I am. And then I sort of try to see if I can do my my time or my whatever effort it is maybe better next time. So it's sort of a little push to myself, like maybe you could have done more. But, you know, I'm also on Strava, right? But yeah. I don't obsess about Strava. I don't obsess about, oh, somebody else took the crown or took the spot, et cetera. It's more like, oh, somebody else had a really good day. Like that might be, maybe I should go back and see if I can do better, but I don't obsess about wanting to go better or needing to go better because a lot of what I use my workouts for today is to de-stress and to work through things or think through things or just find the peace that I need. And every now and then I'll push hard and try to get maximum effort, but it's actually quite rare. I think that's part of why I found long distances to be really helpful for me. I love them. I can go out and run for hours and hours. And I love just being alone with my thoughts. I sort through so many things work-wise, personal-wise. And it's not about how fast I go or really how long I go. It's the process of going. It's the joy of training. And then every now and then signing up for a race where I absolutely will hammer through and try to, to win. And again, I don't get super bummed if I don't win, but winning does feel a heck of a lot better than being number two or three or four or five. So I do my best to become number one. Do you work out every day? Close. And how far is it run for you? I mean, these days things have changed a little bit depending on sort of pace of work and, yeah. and, and COVID. For some, life slowed down. For me, it picked up big yep. time because yep. I'm a parent. And I signed up for a job that is a startup-ish type of job, like building a business. Yep. So and the business been, started to grow 80% month over month as soon as COVID happened. Yeah, the pace has picked up, right, yep. on, on all fronts. So time has been more limited to yep. the workouts I can do. So, you know, I run this morning is eight miles for me. And are you listening to music? Listen to podcasts. You listen to podcasts. Yeah, so or books, I. audibles or podcasts. Yeah, so do I. Or nothing. Or nothing. Yeah. You listen to nothing? Own yeah. thoughts, I guess. So I, that's terrifying. I couldn't do that. It's very healthy. That's terrifying. Absolutely scary. No, uh, you really get to know yourself. That is, that's a <laughs> lot. I don't know if I'm ready for it. So the other day, it was the day before Thanksgiving and I was on a run around my folks' place in San Diego. And I was on the phone while I was running and it was like mile seven, six. And my buddy was telling me about the half marathon that he had just run. And... I was supposed to be there, but I couldn't because of work commitments. Anyway, I was like, I don't think I've ever run more than nine or 10. And I was halfway through, I was six or seven. I was like, you know what? I feel pretty good. And I was like, if you can do it, like yeah, I can run this. Of course you can. So anyway, I went to 13 and yeah. I was like, that felt great. Yeah. Like, I could keep going. Yeah. 
it felt amazing. Right. And then I was like, maybe I could get to 20 someday. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? Yeah, the mind is elastic. So where does this come from? Why do you like this? This is pretty intense. Not only do you work out, but you're a workout instructor. Not only do you go to spin class, but you have to be the first in spin class. At 10 years old, you're waking up at five in the morning to pick strawberries. Help me understand. Oh, listen to this. I moved out of my parents' house when I was 16. What? Because I wanted to be closer to my school and my friends. And they were like, well, if you want to move out, you have to create a budget and pay it for yourself. We're not going to do that for you. So I made a budget, created my spreadsheet, and got a job and moved out and had my own apartment when I was 16. And you're paying rent on your own? Paying rent on my own. To be near your school? And friends and, you know. Were you out of the way before that? We were in the countryside. Yeah. Why are you like this? Like, Because I wanted to be a teenager to everybody else and have like friends and stuff. So, you know, I saw a path to doing that. I can't recommend it though. I mean, at the age of 16, you should have a lot more social life that ended up happening because I had a lot of responsibilities at a young age. Yeah, maybe I can ask the question differently. Like, why do you feel this urge to push yourself to the nth degree? What does that give to you? See, this is where all things are relative, right? Because I don't think I am, because I know there is even more I could do, and I'm choosing not to, because I want to optimize for a breadth of things in my life. I obviously know that, relative speaking, my mm-hmm. guy, I'm extreme compared to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I know I have a tribe that are like me, mm-hmm. <laughs> and some that are even more extreme than I am. But for me, it feels like a comfortable normal. It's not a stretch by any way, shape, or form, because I think I can actually stretch way more than I'm doing right now. But there is definitely something around when you've observed life and you've seen people both pass on to the next life and, you know, you see time is finite. We don't know when our time is up. So there's definitely some checks there around. If you got one life, you do the math of on average, probably get to around like somewhere in the 80s. If I'm lucky, I'll get to where you're on the other side of 100. Mm -hmm. But just sort of calculating the math, okay, you got to the 80s, but then you probably mobility-wise, like you're going to start to get really challenged around 75, probably. Like that's when you have to slow down and do less physical things and travel might be a little less. Okay, so then you like backtrack on the math, like how many years do you then have? Well, then there's work and there's kids and there's other stuff you got to take care of. So how much free time do you then have to do and pursue some of the things you're really passionate about in life? All of a sudden you're like, huh. There are actually not that many vacations and trips that I can take or achievements I can do in my lifetime. So I got to focus and I got to do the things that I want to do and maybe do them really well. Because what I don't want to do one day, and this is maybe like the fear that's driving sometimes, is like live a life in regrets and look back and be like, well, I never got to do this and this and now I can't. So I try to do the things that I have identified that makes me really happy makes me feel fulfilled. And I try to do as much of them as I can. And it's not a singular thing. It's not just the exercise stuff. I mean, there are many other things in my life that I really prioritize and make a point to take care of. But I do make it a priority to do those things and load up on experiences, loading up on things that does fill the bucket or Mm -hmm. fills someone else's bucket. It is a little bit of that. To me, that's important, but I don't feel like I'm reaching for extreme type of environment. It's just, I'm trying to live a full life. It's funny. People call me intense yeah. and I've never understood that. Anytime someone calls me that, A, I kind of take it as a bit of a slight and B, 
I don't think I'm that intense, but everyone tells me like I'm super intense. You have high energy. Do you get that? Does that, not about me, about you. Like, does that, do people tell you that? Absolutely. I mean, look, I've, whenever they hear, oh, she did an ultra marathon this weekend. She just woke up the day before and decided that she did. That's really intense. I'm like, what? I just happen to be able to do it. But I I recognize it is an intense way of living. And I neither take it as a compliment or a slight. That's who I am. I'm comfortable with that. I'm very comfortable with that. Those are my choices. I feel very privileged. I can make those choices. And I feel, yeah, I mean, I take it as a, I have a privilege of choosing so many wonderful things in my life and I'm going to load up and I'm going to do those things. Let me ask you this. When you miss a workout, yeah. one of the problems that I have is I feel the same way. Like a lot of what you say resonates with me. But like even this morning, we were just talking about it before I hit record. I didn't get to do the workout that I wanted to do because it was so early and I had to come down here and then I have to get on a plane after this. I'm not gonna have time tonight. And so it's kind of been ruminating in my brain. Like I wish I got a better workout or if I miss a workout, I'm like, I wish I got that workout. And like, I almost, my feeling towards that is like negative, not positive. How do you feel? My days are definitely better when I get a workout in. Yeah, okay. No doubt. I don't like the days where I don't work out, but I would say I had a a stronger feeling about it when I was younger. And now because life has had so many different things thrown at me, you go through many experiences that forces you to take breaks from things that you really love doing. I've gotten more comfortable with that one. And I just try to make sure I don't do it two days in a row. One day is, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to lose your fitness in one day. It certainly does impact maybe your firing power during the day because you just, I don't know, I feel like I operate at a stronger level when I get my dose of workout in. But I try my very best not letting it get to me. And then you just focus on the next day, right? There's a day tomorrow too. You'll just get it done tomorrow. The Stripe CRO, he was on the show and Mike Clayville, and he talks about how he's a big runner. He's like the top 10, I can't remember exactly what he said, but like the top five to 10 ideas I've ever had in my life came from when I was on a run. Absolutely. You wrote an article on LinkedIn and the title of it was Building Mental Toughness for Higher Levels of Performance. And one of the intro sentences to one of the paragraphs was that I'm a firm believer in the need for taking on new challenges from time to time. I believe it's a critical component to unlocking new levels of achievement We grow through challenge, not when things are easy. It builds mental toughness. That was probably like seven years ago when you wrote that. Explain that a little more. Still holds true, I believe. I think to really stretch, you have to get into your uncomfortable zones. And sometimes going through uncomfortable and challenges gives you perspective. Perspective is really healthy. It pushes you to sometimes be alone with your thoughts when you don't really want to be alone with your thoughts and it makes you process a lot of things. And when you get that perspective, like you're oftentimes able to get into a growth mode as a person. And it is one of those things I feel like when you experience, whether it's a series or over the years, challenges, it can be small, they can be big. You do build some calluses. You become more resilient as you go through it. If you never had a hard day in your life and the first time you experience something that's hard, it's going to be feel really, really, really hard. But if you are a person who have had many challenges go on through life, it has to it takes something really big to sort of ruffle your feathers a little bit and for you to feel unsteady because otherwise you're just rolling with it because you roll with it many times over, right? So 
what I wrote then, I still believe very much holds true. I believe that you believe it wholeheartedly. You left Google in 2011 and you ended up at LinkedIn. Who hired you at LinkedIn? Ah, Jonathan Lister. Got it. He's still there. Yeah. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the team that you started on was, it wasn't much of a team at that point. Is that right? <laughs> no, I think there were one or two people that were in seat, but one of them left right after. And then I got 10 headcount and a spreadsheet with very few dollars on it. And I was told to just build this business and figure out how to make it work. And so I went out and had to hire a team and figure out how to build it from, yes, basically scratch. To what? Scratch to what? What did it end up at? So when I left LinkedIn, it was significantly north of a billion dollars. And how many people did you end up hiring? I mean, gosh, people moved around over the years, but I ended up with, I don't know, 400, 500 people. I don't know. I can't even remember actually. In like four years? Uh, a little more than that. Yeah. That's insane. A little more than that though. It was more like seven years, right? Well, were they two different teams, the marketing solutions no, team? No, it's, the- it's all a, a, this is what happens to your build, right? You build from small and then the business graduates sort of over the year. So every step and path I've taken has been from building and building on top of it and building on top of it and just gets bigger and bigger and broader. Yeah. And then you went to become the VP of global sales for their online sales division, which yeah. was also not much of a team when you joined, if I'm not mistaken. Well, that was uh, just the build on on what I'd already built. Yeah. I was asking people that know you, that worked with you, and they said that you did a lot as a figure for, it was actually women that I was talking to. And they were like, she did a lot to show us what was possible at LinkedIn. And I thought that was really cool. And somebody said that you were, and I don't know if this is right or not, but like you were one of the first, if not the first female VPs in the sales division at LinkedIn. Is that even right? One of the first, yeah. Yeah. Did you know you were carrying that torch when you were doing it? Yeah, I was aware. And I give tremendous amount of gratitude to Gamson because part of, I think, what really created that path was his commitment to diversity in the workplace. So when I started at LinkedIn as a director, we were not very many female directors and there really weren't very many women leveled up from that, except from Shannon at Jeff's table, maybe a few others, right? But it was very few, uh, very senior executives. And he wanted to change that. And so he invested quite a bit in ensuring that we created an environment that was supportive of women and supported us in our development as well. And so I was very well aware that I carried a torch there, but it's also something I've always been incredibly passionate about. I'm grateful to have grown up in an environment where both my parents worked. In my grandparents' case, it wasn't the case. And so I got great advice from my grandmother before I left Denmark. And she said to me, you have a privilege growing up in a time and an age where you can get a great education and you can carve your own path in life. And she goes, you own your own happiness. You have the privilege of owning your own happiness. And my wish for you is for you to always be able to independently live your life the way you want to live it. And that was not because she was miserable or unhappy. She was in a happy marriage, but she was in a marriage where her husband, my, my granddad, sat on the money purse. She had to ask for an allowance for money to go do things. She couldn't have a career. And she lost her sense of identity. And she lost her sense of identity, right? And so when he then passed, she made it a point to remind me again of the privilege that I have. And so that has sat in me throughout my entire career, 
that I have a great privilege. I'm fortunate to have grown up in an environment where I was given the privilege, but we still have a, to some extent, like a society that doesn't necessarily support women, especially not women when you find yourself in conflict with like family and work and other caretaking responsibilities. It is still to this day, mostly women who take the backseat in it and get sort of pushed back in their careers or paused in their careers. And so I always thought very much about how can I help women both creating opportunities for them, but also finding confidence in their own abilities to continue to pursue their dreams and, and the possibilities of moving into careers that they may perceive closed off to them. So yeah, I'm investing quite a bit of time in both mentoring and speaking and try to do what I can to share the message of the importance of ensuring that we don't neither allow others to create ceilings for us and, and certainly also don't create our own on that path. So that gave me goosebumps. There's another article that you wrote and the article was about leading through tough times. And one of the headers of the article was that over the years, I had the opportunity to lead teams through tough, good and fantastic times. I would love to hear about what tough means. What's a tough time? There are many examples. Like, uh, Sorry, I'm putting you on the hot seat yeah, here. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm trying to think, what did I write? <laughs> I should have, I should have read it's my all own. in the public ledger. I should have read my own That's LinkedIn. That's the problem book. with working for a social media company. <laughs> Taking many shapes throughout the years. Like tough times are when you do big reorganizations and they may not feel great to a good portion of the population. And you may have to eliminate certain roles in the greater good of pushing the company forward. But some people's jobs just don't make sense anymore. Those are tough times when you lead teams, just emotionally when you connect with people and you are very invested in who they are and they're invested in what they do. So those are tough times. I mean, I'm lucky that I've only worked for companies that have been on the up and the up and the up. So ultimately the problems I've had to solve and make decisions around have been positive for the company. Growth problems. Yeah, growth problems. Yeah. But are nevertheless big problems for individuals whose jobs might change or be eliminated as part of those changes. And those, those are hard times. Yeah. It's also being in sales. It's hard if you ever have dips in, you know, attainment over a period of time, right? It just- You ever miss a quarter? You ever miss a year? I've never missed a year. You've never missed a year? I've never missed a year. You ever missed two quarters in a row? The first two quarters I was at LinkedIn, we missed. Your first two quarters of LinkedIn. Yeah. As a leader. Yeah. Yeah. And building I think, a new team. I think, yeah. And then I think we had one or two quarters later on, but other than that. How'd that feel? Your first, you thought you were going to get fired? No, I did not because I knew we were starting from scratch. And so I'd set those expectations coming in. I'm like, look, we're building. And when you don't have a lot of historical data to set quarters based on, it's a little bit, let's see what we can do. No, I didn't feel like I was going to get fired based on that. But I knew if I was going to continue for a full year, yeah. I might be put to the fire for a little bit. I might have games and walking into my office and be like, <laughs> hey, Heidi, we got to talk, you know, and I certainly would have Jonathan on the phone. <laughs> but I knew, I mean, when you're building and those guys are super senior, smart leaders, right? You just create some space and then you just look at other KPIs to see if the right building blocks are in place. And if those are looking good and looking sound, it's just a matter of time before the execution really starts to, to take shape and you can start to build on top of that. 
Why'd you leave? Strikes me that this was your baby. You did. At LinkedIn? Yeah. Yeah. You did like, I don't know, eight, nine years shift there. Mm-hmm. Built it from scratch into a billion plus dollar business. Yeah. You're on the fast track with all the right people in your corner to continue to take on more responsibility. Yeah. Oh, what happened? <laughs> I was not looking. Yeah, they never are. Yeah, never no, are. I was not looking. And a key reason I took the call from next door was because there was a woman CEO at next door. So who's amazing. Who, who is phenomenal. Yes. And so, but I didn't know her at the time. I had no idea who she was. I had never Sarah, heard Sarah. Yeah. yeah. Sarah Fryer. Never really heard her name, actually, which is my mistake, but I just hadn't. But the pitch of a woman CEO was really interesting. And so I accepted the initial phone call. And then I said, cold no at first, even when I was had the first pitch of a woman CEO. My first answer was no. I'm not looking to move. I'm actually in a really good spot with where I'm at. My business is on the up and the up. I have an amazing leadership team. I'm pretty good. (laughs) But they came back and said, you know, it it feels like it would be a mistake. Great sales pitch. It feels like it would be a mistake to not, you know, given your passion for creating opportunity for women, especially in tech, for you not to meet with a woman CEO who actually just became a CEO and is moving in. And when you said no, you had not met with Sarah I had not met with Sarah This is the recruiting team. Yeah, this is the recruiting team. Or the executive recruiters. Yes, exactly. And so I was like, you're right. And I was like, what? I got to leave my own ethos, building my network, right? If nothing else, I would love to meet an amazing woman. And then I learned that she was from Ireland and had also immigrated. I'm like, ah, feels like she could be really interesting to get to know. And so I met Sarah and we just had a great connection from initially when we talked. I think the, the share bond of having, we come from not too dissimilar backgrounds, quite frankly, both being some of the first to go through the types of careers and schooling that we've gone through. And then she's an immigrant also to the US, right? And a little bit different path, but there's still, you initially just connect in a certain way. And then we started talking and I got to know more about her, what drives her, how she sees the company, what inspires, motivates her. I started learning more about her skill set, her background, what she did before as a CFO. And then I looked at my my own prof- CFO of Square. CFO of Square, obviously super Pre- successful. Previous to that, like <laughs> SVP of finance at Salesforce. Yeah, Goldman Sachs, like just Yeah, previous to that, like twelve year career at Goldman. Yep. Yeah. And so obviously looked at all of that, but I mean, resumes are resumes, right? But it was really more... Sits on the board of Walmart and Slack. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. she's badass. But resumes are still sort of resumes. It's really the person mm-hmm. I was interested in. And it was the experiences and the skill sets that she has. And so when I got to get to know better her skill sets and I was looking at my own and where I wanted to grow and where I felt like there was some open space to really get much more skilled... It just nested very nicely with her CFO background and the experiences that she's had in her career. And I felt like I could offer a great amount around my history of having built businesses and building for scale and understanding monetization models and teams. And so as we started talking, it felt like it was just, there was a good complementary set of skills, but we also had for better or worse, like I think we have a lot of personality traits that are very similar, which makes it really easy to have conversations because you both have sort of systems thinkers, principles. We're both principle based, clearly both high achievers, mm-hmm. <laughs> what we do, yep. which when you have both have high excellence bars, it's easier to sort of 
share a unbounded ambition. Yeah, yeah. Why would you think at just that level when you can go to the mountaintop over there? The view is going to be better, right? Yeah, yeah. the view is going to be better. Let's yeah. do that. You know. Yeah. <laughs> You made the jump. That was July of 2020. Yeah. I mean, obviously Sarah was one driver. It wasn't the only one though, yeah. just to be very clear. But yeah. she definitely was someone I was like, oh, I can see myself working for her, but I still had to do all the homework on, is this a company I want to work for? Do I believe in the company? Do I want to build again? Do I want to take that on? Building is a lot of work. Yeah. Do I want to start with that? And do I believe in the, the rest of the team? And it's now the time. Like timing has a lot to do with when you want to take on a new role, right? And this was... When we talked, it was before the pandemic had really hit, but you could tell something was going to come up, yep. right? So there were some timing elements that I had to really work through before I made the jump. What do you think one of the toughest questions that you asked them, Sarah or the team was? And the inverse, what do you think one of the toughest questions that they asked you was? And you could say tough, most important, most informative. Huh, that is a very, very good question. I mean, we did this dance for months. So I'm like trying to think through like the amount of questions and what were the toughest ones. I mean, for me, asking questions, I think it, it fell in two camps. One was sort of the ambition. How big was the ambition and willingness to invest and take intelligent risks to get there? Because what I want to do is build for big, not just big, big, but extra large, <laughs> large scale. So I wanted to understand if that ambition was there and if it was shared across all the important stakeholders in decision-making, which obviously is a harder question to really answer, but I think that was a hard question to ask, but I, I probed on that. The second one was how much are you willing, when you say you're a people-first organization, how much are you really willing to put weight behind that and supporting employees in becoming successful professionals and having an amazing career and feel supported in all the ways they need to become the best at work. So I, my questions were, the tougher questions are probably in those two buckets. Mm-hmm. The questions I got that were sort of in the, the tougher camp were probably more around, how can I build something that isn't necessarily just what everybody else have been doing that is sustainable and differentiated and, and meaningful mm-hmm. based on the raw ingredients I'd seen at the time. When you were evaluating the opportunity, you said open space to get more skilled. What do you mean by that? Clarify, please. In your answer, when you said, uh, I was talking to Sarah yeah. and I was excited by the opportunity and by the complimentary nature of who we could be yeah. because of what it meant to have open space to get more skilled. Yeah, so my open space. Your um, open space. Yeah, my open space. There's an area in sort of a financial bucket, if you will, where I can read numbers. I am not allergic to a spreadsheet. I love spreadsheets. <laughs> I understand like general business data because I've been living in that world for a long time. I mean, look, when you run revenue and a part of a revenue world, you get comfortable with numbers. But there is a world that I definitely wanted to learn a lot more about. And that is when you look at it from a C-suite lens, how do you look at a portfolio of investments that you make as a company? Also life stage of the company, right? We hadn't gone IPO yet when I started next door. I wanted to learn about that process as well. Like for me, what drives me a lot in my career is like, I want to continue to just open up as many doors as possible so I can go and do what I feel is right for me. And it's, but I want to add doors. And it felt like a door addition 
to learn about a going public process and right. what that looks like from a financial preparedness. Like, what does an investor day actually really mean? What yeah. is an S4? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can read about it, but until you actually live that experience yeah. and then you get to work with someone who's gone through it before and who is one who is really, really gets it. And you have one of the best to explain to you yeah. how all of that works and how to think about it. That is a gift. If I take nothing else with me, like that has been an amazing gift. That makes total sense. And that answer does not surprise me in the slightest. So you went public in November of this year. Market cap today is 4.4 billion. Nextdoor is used in one of three households in the US today, active in over 275,000 neighborhoods in 11 countries. Can you take 30 seconds or less? What does Nextdoor do? What is it? It's a way for you to connect with neighbors in the neighborhoods that matter to you. It is LinkedIn plus Yelp plus Facebook hyper-localized for your specific neighborhood. No. Okay, what is it? It is neighbors having the ability to connect with other neighbors and to have the opportunity to feel belonging in their neighborhood and feel supported and feeling connected and being able to offer kindness to each other. You didn't like my analogy of the other social media tools. Okay, not, I got it. I am it. not I, allergic. <laughs> I think all of them are amazing and they serve amazing purposes. Yeah. But I do think they are different and should be used with a different intent. So caveat to this, I said, Heidi, is there anything that we can't talk about? And the one thing you said was <laughs> the IPO. And I kind of said like, okay, and I'm going to do it anyway. So- Of course you are. Uh, I knew that. And, and so um, <laughs> I saw a picture of you in the stock exchange and ringing the bell with Sarah and the executive teams. Really cool. Obviously, it's a moment of elation. Obviously, when you started a year and a half ago, you knew of the ambitions of going public. But like when you talk about the super ambition that you have- Going public is a small milestone along the way of a much larger thing. However, I will say this, there has been employees, employees on your team that have probably been at this company for a very long time. And so for you, the journey, both in time and in scope is just beginning. And it has just begun a year or two ago, right? For others, it's like, this is such an incredible milestone. And Sarah also came into the business a few years ago, right? And so her journey also started seven, eight years in, right? And so the reason they brought people like you in is to take this company much further beyond this moment in time of creating liquidity for the early employees and then getting money from the public markets and then going to build from there. How do you balance that? Where it's like, okay, oh my God, we did it. And a lot of those people that say we did it are early, early employees, and Kleiner, man, if you start a company now, going public is the milestone, right? We want to hit revenue goals in order to take the company public. And often that is the medium to long-term goal, especially for sub 150 employees. So long-winded way of asking, and this is my way of tiptoeing around it, but long-winded way of asking, how do you balance that of like, we're just starting, but also like, hey, you've also been here for five, seven years, this company, this is a moment of appreciation for the work that we've done to get, get here? We definitely pause and take in the appreciation. So even though I say it's a, a moment in time, it's a big moment mm -hmm. in that time. And we did pause and we did really make sure that we recognized all the work that had led up to the day. 
which was also why we had some of the longest tenured people participating in the IPO, where you can imagine we obviously had a lot less people than you normally would have done had the COVID restrictions not been in place, right? right? So it was, of course, a celebration for the company. We had our parties and our recognitions and invested time together and actually spent a good portion of the day in service of volunteering in communities, which That's really cool. very much underscores the why we also chose the ticker kind, right? We really not just talking about our mission, but making it a point to live it. So we could have partied all day long. Mm-hmm. We volunteered most like half of the day. And we did like that across like all offices and, and, and locations where our employees were based. So, you know, when I say I don't want to spend too much time on the IPO, it's, it's not to take away from the amazing milestone and work that has gone in to that. We also have employees who, who yes, it's a big milestone in a moment, but they know that this is not where it stops because the IPO itself isn't necessarily life-changing yep. <laughs> for them, right? And isn't necessarily helping us isn't the moment we have met our mission. It is a moment where we will be able to get capital in that can accelerate our ability to meet that mission. And when you have a company that is purpose-driven and your employees are there because they believe so deeply in that mission, they see that and they understand that and they get excited knowing that, oh my gosh, now we're gonna be closer and in a better position Mm -hmm. to get like really moving against some of the big objectives that we have. So maybe I have a blind spot in thinking, oh, you know, we did great in in working through that. We did all the right things. But I I do really feel like for the most part, employees were just really excited about the day, the moment, but then getting back to work and really pushing at the next level, the next five levels. Yep, that's fair. I read a stat. I don't know if this is true. It kind of blew my mind. That Nextdoor ranks as the fifth most frequented site behind Facebook, Snapchat, Google, and Instagram? That is mind-blowing. That blew my mind. So anyway, someone can fact-check me on that from the audience. I'm probably wrong, as I tend to be, but that is unbelievable. Something interesting happened with this business, which is that during COVID, it started growing 80% month over month, which is a lot. Here's how I want to start this, which is with a quote that I read so there's this, I'm sure you know the Twitter feed of Nextdoor quote. It is hilarious. It's what people post. Oh my God. So someone wrote in the platform, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> happy Thanksgiving to everyone except Phil. Every one of you except for Phil are wonderful neighbors. I'm happy to be a part of this community. It's absolutely cracked me up. I don't know why I had to share that. So the questions that I have for you around this business are the following. The first is 76% of members were influenced by a neighbor's local business recommendation. Why is that? I mean, individuals try to minimize risk, right? With how they spend their time, spend their money, want to make sure when you go out to have a good meal. Why does your neighborhood give you a verification mechanism? Why is there so much trust that's implicit to living near someone to the point where 76% of people are influenced that is the blue check mark that they need to know that, okay, because you're in the geographical proximity to me, I trust your taste in sushi. Does the question make sense? Yeah, but I think it's more, I trust your taste in sushi, but I also trust that you have gone to the exact restaurant that I'm looking at. You can have people from elsewhere talk about the quality of sushi, but have never been to that exact restaurant and getting served meals at that restaurant. 
they don't know how the food is going to be at that restaurant. Mm -hmm. So I think it's more around the frequency of which those around you have actually visited the places that you care about. Those recommendations you hold of value. Yeah, I think that's fair. What tripped me up that I thought a lot about was like, why is this business growing like this? And it was just interesting for me to think about, wow, people really trust their neighbors and want a deep sense of belonging and community and finding common ground, whatever that is, with their neighbors. Yeah, when the pandemic happened, obviously we're, many of us were in lockdowns and, and were confined to our neighborhoods. I think a lot of people rediscovered the value of having people around you that are in close proximity who can either help you out or whether it's share recommendations or talk about the news and, and whatever else. Or go it pick was, up groceries for you. Pick up groceries. I mean, yeah. there's, we saw it and next door certainly benefited from it, right? Because it's, this is our space. Mm -hmm. But you did see sort of this whole change in mindset. And I can't tell you how many emails and messages I get around, I am so thankful that this platform is here. I couldn't get out of my house because of X, Y, Z reasons. And my neighbor was kind enough to get my medication or help me find an appointment for a vaccine or similar things, right? Stuff that maybe family elsewhere could have, have helped but those are all local needs. And so it's really hard to go and find otherwise someone to pick up your medication unless it's someone who lives close to you. And it's hard to connect with them. It's like one of those things like your kids go to the playground and they super easily make friends with all the other kids. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, they're like, oh, I found a new best friend. Mm -hmm. We never met each other before, but now we are. And the older we get, more awkward and strange we become, right? Yeah. Like we... So learn over the years, don't talk to a stranger and be weary, et cetera. And we're not very good at connecting with people that we don't really know. And I think this is my personal take on it. I think as we ended up back spending a lot of time in our neighborhoods and weren't able to travel all that much anymore and leveraging our families the way we, we otherwise might have been able to, we were able to sort of work through a little bit of those like challenges of feeling like it's intimidating to meet people around you. I certainly found myself all of a sudden crossing the street to my aging neighbor more often mm -hmm. and being like, hey, are you guys okay? Yep. Is there anything you need? Because I know your kids live far away and you may or may not be able to go out and do something. And I got the same gift from others in that, oh, we know you are a single parent who has a young elementary school kid. Life is probably really busy because you also work. Do you need help? Yes, I do. Thank you. I don't really know you, but yes, I need help. <laughs> and so you saw a lot of both good coming out in people, but it was also, I think that we were sort of pushed to get into a, an uncomfortable zone and then we got more comfortable with those around us again. I know that doesn't speak to your recommendations question, but I think that is part of the psychology change that sort of came to life. I think there's a lot of data now that shows, look, we've never been more connected and never felt more lonely as individuals. And so you start to ask yourself, well, why is that? And I think a lot of it comes back to why I like going to the gym, why I like going to a class, because I crave a sense of community, shared interests, common ground. And especially when you're nearby people, like just being able to spend time, I think goes a, a really long way. Nextdoor is in 11 countries, is that right? Correct. Okay. It's only monetizing in four. Mm -hmm. And you've seen this story play out before. And monetizing can happen in a bunch of ways. 
I think the obvious example, which is right in your wheelhouse is the ads business. And it's a beautiful business when it works. So I think the monetization strategy is generally probably in, in these types of network effect businesses underpinned by the number of users, or in this case, number of households. So if it's one in three right now, you can only monetize those one in three houses, right? If it's four of 11 countries, you can only build a business and drive revenue approximate to the number of countries that you're in. How much do you think about building the base, more countries, maybe two out of three houses, rather than the revenue and monetization strategy for your existing users today? I think about both. You have to diversify how you think about these things. Do those both fall into your purview? So, I mean, it falls my purview in that as part of the executive team, I need to be part of thinking about the overall yeah. you know, health and, and strategy and growth for the company. So I certainly spend a good portion of my time with the growth side of the house, right? And both in terms of just as an executive supporting them in their thinking and in their strategies, but also given that we do have a, a monetization model today that is primarily focused on advertising, which is a two-sided marketplace. You have supply, you have demand. You can build the best demand model out there, but if you don't have the supply, you're not going to make the money, right? <laughs> you're going to take from Peter and give to Paul. And so naturally baked in, there is always for me this focus on ensuring that when we are building our supply, that it is supply that is monetizable, you can monetize it. And so I obviously help look at things like, is it better to have more frequent visiting neighbors on the platform versus a higher number of neighbors on the platform? How do we balance them? What types of neighbors are we able to better monetize given the context of the platform? Not all neighbors from a monetization standpoint will give you the equal value back to advertisers. And so it's a very complex set of decisions that you have to constantly make. And the way we sort of operate as a leads team is we get very involved in each other's areas, if you will which really ensures that we're able to look at the problems more holistically rather than optimizing from a singular standpoint. So we don't optimize for DAO for the sake of DAO. We optimize for growth, making sure that we have an eye towards monetization with yeah. it. Well, there's got to be exciting problems to solve. Even your DAOs for the sake of DAOs, like the daily active problem, one of the interesting sets of data that I was looking at for this company was that when it goes from monthly to weekly, that's interesting, but once you get to weekly, it accelerates to daily. And so then you start to think about, well, like what are the levers to get someone onto a weekly active user? Because once they get to that point, they see the value of the platform very clearly. And then you can start to think like, well, how can I help feed better data to product based on what we're seeing on usage to then make, I just, it's a really cool intricate set of problems. Yeah. If you haven't seen our insight series, it's definitely worth paying attention to. And it's an area you continue to invest. It's created across a number of different people, but primarily out of, of my organization. And, and part of that is to really bring the data and the behaviors that we're seeing in our platform to life, which does inform how we think about our growth strategy. It also informs how we go to market the types of verticals and customers, obviously, yep. that we try to get on board because we can look at where we have the supply. We can look at where we need the supply and we can look at what type of behaviors that become valuable behaviors. And obviously we have a whole neighbor vitality 
group, right, that looks at just the health of the whole ecosystem. And that obviously is a big driver behind too, how we, we think about growing the business, because fundamentally, if the, the ecosystem isn't healthy, you're not going to have much of a business for all that long. So you're in 11 countries today. Mm. Have you or the business noticed any cultural nuances about the way that neighborhoods work? Do people want different things out of their neighbors based on the culture that you're in? I mean, there are some diversity even within the U.S., depending on where you are in the U.S., but there are really more similarities than there are differences. There are still the fundamentals of people either wanting to help, need help, have thoughts on local topics that are interesting to many different types of neighbors and wanting to exchange ideas and thoughts on those. I have seen sort of universally sort of a, a desire and interest to share great moments from the neighborhoods as pride in, in the local areas that they live. That's universal too, as far as I've been able to tell in the behaviors and in what's getting shared. There are more similarities than there are differences, but of course there's localization elements and we'll continue to unpack what those are because we obviously look into those similarities how we build go-to-market models. You look at localization areas. Yeah. But you look like you're super surprised. I'm not so surprised that there are more similarities or differences. The, the human it actually species. kind of warms my heart, honestly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I was just thinking about? That look of surprise was really a look of thought, mostly empty thought in my brain. But one of the things that, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I'm sure you have. But when you left your house at mm-hmm. 16, mm-hmm. you wanted to be next door to other people. That was the point of you leaving your family's house. Like you wanted to, feel a sense of belonging that you didn't get. I think one of the things that excites me about what Nextdoor can do is actually helping you create belonging in a community faster. I've been in the Bay Area for almost 20 years now, but I've lived in many different types of communities here. I lived in the peninsula, Marin, San Francisco, mm-hmm. back to the peninsula, different parts of the peninsula, and moved with a fairly regular cadence into these different types of neighborhoods and communities. You know, you have friends and networks because people move around here too, but it is a little bit of a cold start, right? Like when you start new in a neighborhood, you got to find your whole life infrastructure again. And so the more you have the ability to have a, a referral network that's local, yep. that knows the local doctors and knows the local... Oh, that's a good one. Local doctors. Yeah, doctors, dentists, yeah. dog walkers, mm-hmm. babysitters, all the things you'd need on a regular basis right. to live and, and get things done in your life. Getting to those before and next door and even some of the other social media platforms was really hard. Yeah. It was very hard to go find that. Yeah. And now when you move in somewhere or you think about moving, you put out a question. Hey, I'm looking for these three things. Mm-hmm. And immediately you have a bunch of people who said, oh, I had a great experience with this. Here's what I recommend. Five of my friends are using this. I recommend for you to take a look. Even if it's not the best it narrows down your search and simplifies all the different decisions and research you have to do to get it all that in place. Mm-hmm. Plus, there are different ways you then can connect with people. Hey, I'm new to the area. I'm looking for the best running routes. Is anyone willing to take me for a run in the neighborhood or oh, where man, else I can go? that would be their worst nightmare going on a run with you. They're like, what did I just sign up for? No, <laughs> no. I'm probably slower than you. Oh, but like, you know, I just noticed your running watch, by the way. It's a massive, super intense runner's watch. It's a Garmin. I like it. 
But, you know, it's an easier way, again, to connect with people in a non sort of weird, awkward way because totally. it feels really natural. And people are generally just excited to welcome you to where they are and sort of show you around and, and be part of your journey coming in. So what I love is it really breaks down and makes it simpler and easier for people to go back and find their tribes and find a community and, and feel like they belong. That sense of belonging is really critical for people to not feel lonely. Yeah. There's something nostalgic about that too, right? Neighborhoods were originally designed for this exact purpose. And I think we've strayed a little bit away from that over time. Everyone kind of gets stuck in their own bubble. One or two more questions. You have obviously recruited a bunch of talent in your life throughout your career. How do you think about recruiting talent differently or maybe similarly you have a couple of superpowers at this company that I think are very helpful for you. And so I just want to explore this. And I've seen this in the Kleiner portfolio. In fact, I've seen it in such stark ways that I would never go to a company that probably didn't have these superpowers. The first is a female-led CEO and you, right? You took that meeting because of Sarah and what she represented. The glass ceilings that you broke at LinkedIn are now going to give you the ability to go then hire a bunch of those people who look up to you as the torchbearer, similar to what Sarah probably was in some way for you. So I think that's one. The second is, is a mission that people deeply resonate with. And I think you can create all sorts of different types of missions. But if you're a mental health company like Modern Health and you have a woman CEO, who's early 30s, man, that is a recruiting superpower. We have a company that's trying to get the world to carbon zero and get large enterprises there. So if you care about the environment, you're going to be able to outkick your coverage recruiting. I don't know. Do you think about that? Is it different? Is it still the same? How does that work for you today? So I've only ever worked for purpose-driven companies. Mm -hmm. Like Google was purpose-driven. Mm -hmm. Well, when I moved into tech, that is, right? Yeah, but and like what? The purpose was to organize the world's data? Yeah, that's super important. It's not just organize it, it's making it easily accessible. Yeah. Like access to data is very powerful. But when I wake up in the morning, I don't think about that. I've never thought about that. I've never thought about the idea, and maybe I take it for granted now, that I can't wait to go work at Google to organize and let people access the world's data. I would definitely think about... I wish I didn't check my Instagram this morning. And the reason I am is because I want a deeper sense of belonging. I think it's a timing thing because I didn't get the internet until I went to high school. And even then it was dial-up. And throughout college, it was dial-up still. And so getting easy access for information, it was not easy access. It was like, could I get the dial-up to work? And then it was super, super slow. And then eventually I could find some information. So for me, the portal to Google and Yahoo... That was like an access to this incredible amount of information that felt so hard to get otherwise, unless I would go through massive encyclopedias and, and like whatever else, or ask people questions and I may, may not be getting the answers. Here I could get the answer to anything I wanted to know about. It was incredible. <laughs> so for me, that purpose was a big door opener to possibilities. And it certainly expanded my mindset and thinking about opportunity in life. Wow. Like you can read about all these people who've done really amazing things that you wouldn't have read about because they may not have hit the newspaper headline, but they certainly are representing stories and were torchbearers or whatever the scenarios were. And you can find inspiration and you can learn and you can all of a sudden you can 
study topics that are hard to study before. You can get to know about the human body, all these different areas. So working for Google for me was really a purpose-driven moment. At LinkedIn, it was all about giving people access to opportunity. So the threat was first when I worked for Google, it was like, oh my gosh, giving people access to information. And now it's like giving people access to opportunity through LinkedIn, because many of us have been in a very privileged position. We've gone to good schools. We have built out networks. I eventually found my way in the U.S., built out a network and got access to all these different people who gave me more access to many more people. There are many people out there who do not have that privilege. And it's really hard for them to break out of either the circle. So they don't know they can. They don't know what the opportunities are. It feels like so hard for them to get to it. But when you start to get connected to people and you serve information on LinkedIn, you see the opportunities, you see the jobs, you see different paths people have taken, you see, you hear about stories that people have overcome or they've broken you bar- like through barriers. That is another level of purpose. And then coming to next door, it's for me, it's been sort of a build on on that. Now you've helped work on how you sort information and give access to information, you help give access to opportunity. Now let's really ensure that we bring people together in, in unity and community and help support each other and make people feel like they have a network and a support system to get them to the opportunity they want to get to or could think of getting to. There are many different ways of thinking about the power of something like next door. Your neighbors can also be your best supporters in helping carry you through things in life. They can ultimately help you achieve your goal, right? Somebody might need to take some classes at night at a school and then the neighbor can help babysit for a few hours. There's so many powerful things that can come with the power of, of a community. And it's, it's not just the loneliness, alone is a big one, but it is also the, you have a new support network that you may no longer have because not that many people live around their immediate family anymore. So your neighborhood almost becomes a possible family for you in, in that sense. And where that comes in when it comes to hiring, like tying back to how you teed this up, when you get to have the opportunity to work for something that is greater than you and you really can find passion for, the talent you bring in that have that feeling is a talent that is built in resilience. So as the grind gets hard, you work a lot of hours, things are tough, external challenges happen, internal challenges happen, things happen in life. Going back and then thinking in the morning when you wake up, well, I'm doing this because it is going to make the world a better place. It gets you through those moments and you anchor back into that. And so as, as a leader and as someone who part of my job is to inspire, it gives you a shared set of emotions and feelings to go back to. And that becomes your starting point. And then from there, we talk about the other things that have to get done. But it's that emotional connection. It really does give you superhuman powers at times. So cool. Heidi, what does the word grit mean to you? Yes. I mean, many books have been written about it. But Mm -hmm. for me, it's the ability to work through the feelings of wanting to stop or like a mounding feeling of this feels really challenging and every part of your body might be screaming, just stop here. It's okay. But you're willing to work through that to get to a longer term goal. So the sustained efforts to work through a mounting feeling and wanting to stop, 
and getting through that and getting to the other side. That's what grit means to me. I think you embody a lot of those qualities. Is Nextdoor hiring? What are you hiring for? Are there any key roles in your organization or if you're feeling charitable in somebody else's organization at Nextdoor that you guys are trying to fill? And if so, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Are you looking? Yeah. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk career. Yes, we are. We are absolutely hiring. We are hiring across pretty much every single function in the company, which is part of the excitement of being in the growth curve that we are in. Super exciting moment for a super exciting journey. I'm hiring in the revenue organization. I'm hiring across all traditional sales roles. You can imagine hiring for sales marketing, hiring for customer analytics, hiring for sales operations, all the traditional roles. Really, literally, it's every single role that you can think of in a company. We are an exciting mission right now where we have a great opportunity to bring in some amazing people. If you are of the gritty nature, even better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. How do you get a hold of you? You are welcome to email me at Heidi at Nextdoor. I didn't make that one difficult. You could probably have figured out how to get to me by putting a couple of different letters together. Tip there is like anybody else's inboxes these days. We get a lot of emails. Make it count. Use your best sales skills, right? Be concise and clear when you write in and I'll do my best to get to you. And if I don't do it right away, don't feel afraid of giving me another nudge down the road. Heidi at nextdoor.com. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.